Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest from May 17th, 2018, The Leaks and the Leaking Leakers Who Leaked Them Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in D.C., solo, solo in D.C. I can see via video chat Emily Bazelon, who's somewhere else. New Haven. She's with the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. And I cannot see, but I can hear John Dickerson of CBS This Morning in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I'm sorry I can't see you, but I, I nevertheless have a very clear image of the two of you in my mind. I'm wearing a purple sweater. That's mm-hmm. all you need to know. Yes, I've never I, worn a purple sweater, and I never hope to be one. I'm wearing a check shirt and nothing else. No, that's not true. Um, on this week's GapFest, the morass in Israel with a new U.S. embassy and the same old conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Then, why does the Trump White House leak so much and is that bad? And then, good news, I think, or Emily will tell us if it's good news, New York is going to basically stop arresting and prosecuting pot smokers. Oh, wait a second. No, that is such an overstatement. Uh, I wish that were the case. All right. (laughs) Okay, New York is going to force everyone to smoke pot. (laughs) That's what it feels like sometimes as I walk through Greenpoint. Anyway, plus we will have cocktail chatter. And do not forget... Philadelphians and near Philadelphians. We have a live show coming up on Wednesday, July 18th at the Keswick Theater at 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. We haven't done a Philly show in many, many years. We are thrilled to be coming back to to the home state, the home city of Ms. Bazelon. And uh, we really want to see you out there. So please join us at the Keswick Theater on July 18th, slate.com slash live for tickets. Slate Plus members get 30% off your ticket. So, whoa, what a bargain. Definitely come. See you there. Joined by Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and blessed by some very controversial American pastors, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, celebrated the opening of the new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem on Monday. As these celebrations were happening, Israeli soldiers were firing firing live ammunition and firing tear gas on thousands of Palestinian protesters who were assaulting or protesting at the fence separating Gaza from Israel. 60 Palestinians were killed, nearly 3,000 wounded in the one-sided battle. There was not a single Israeli casualty, I believe. This was just the latest in a series of increasingly tense protests in Gaza, somewhat instigated by Hamas or but not entirely instigated by Hamas, which rules Gaza, presumably to draw the world's attention to to conditions in the Gaza Strip, which has been blockaded by Israel for a decade, is a generally very unpleasant place to be and live. To use the technical term, what's going on in Israel is a fucking mess. And as an American Jew married to an Israeli Jew, I am gutted by what is happening. Emily, this is just, this is a terribly complicated and awful story. Um, But let's start with, Let's start with uh, this question of whether 
there is a peace process anymore, and there can be. The U.S. has always been Israel's best friend, but it has also been kind of a potential broker in whatever peace process was going on. Is that are those days over? Have we basically picked sides? We're with Israel now, and there's no potential uh, for negotiation with the Palestinians. I think the Trump administration, yes, has abdicated the United States traditional role of some kind of arbiter. So previous presidents and administrations made clear that they were Israel's friend and supporter, but also maintained enough critical distance to have some kind of credibility as a neutral arbiter and a convener. And now that's no longer the case. I mean, it was, uh, to me... um, also gutting to hear the White House spokesperson just entirely blame these horrible deaths on Hamas. Now, obviously, like Hamas does bear some responsibility, but that just seems to be such a terrible oversimplification of what happened, all the underlying tensions and currents that led up to these confrontations at the border fence in Gaza. You know, I think Israel has I think the most right-wing militaristic government it's ever had, and the United States is giving Israel more leeway to act with impunity than I think the United States has ever done before. And it's that toxic combination that is leading to the end of, um, I mean, it's the peace process already was in terrible trouble. And again, there are all these underlying factors, but it does feel mired and hopeless and brutal right now in a way that I, I mean, I, I, I don't remember it being this way before, which isn't to say that the intifadas weren't terrible in their own right, but this dynamic feels really awful to me. Yeah, there's I, one of the things that I find so disturbing, I suppose it's not different in Israel than it is in a lot of the rest of the world, is that no one seems to be playing any kind of long game. That yes. there's a Hamas for short-term reasons and and to, to draw the attention of the world does want to provoke Israeli retaliation, cause and even cause death of Palestinians. I mean, that's, that is clearly part of the goal is to provoke Israel to respond um, excessively. Israel is feeling impunity and no longer has any interest in any kind of peace process or negotiation doesn't isn't there's no punishment that the world is going to carry out against Israel I think and so it's it has felt free to act however it wants the other arab states are largely indifferent to the palestinian cause not that not that people don't feel sympathy for what the palestinians are going through and one should the conditions in gaza and the west bank are horrible but that they don't really they're not invested in doing anything about it it's just – and there's this looming demographic crisis, which is that they're going to be – they're two hugely growing populations in a very small space, and one of them has no rights of citizenship and, and participation in society. And that's – And is Palestinian. And is Palestinian. Yeah. And that's – that's it's both a moral crisis and a political crisis that that is the case. And the second group you're talking about are Orthodox Jews, right? Right. So an, they, increasingly right-wing, increasingly religious – Israelis who are then facing off against increasingly numerous and disaffected and alienated Palestinians who are no longer integrated in any meaningful way into the economic life of Israel also, which is another problem, which is it used to be that Palestinians and Israelis had a lot of connection to each other because they Palestinians did a lot of the work, and that's less and less and less true. It is not like South Africa where the foundation of the South African economy was the labor of black Africans. 
Israel has, has one of the, the facts of separation is that it's separated its economy from the Palestinian economy. So they don't even care. It's like there's no they're not tied up in an economic future together either, which is terrible. It's all it's all bad. Every part of it is bad. Right. I mean, it seems like there are moments in this, you know, 170 year, however you want to count conflict in which international and domestic and regional forces push toward moderation. And then there are moments when they divide and empower the extremists. And right now we are in a moment in which extremists on both sides are being encouraged. And and whatever it's taken to reach that point, like however much you want to say that, you know, Gazans have been manipulated into this position by Arab states, by Hamas, by their own leaders, it sort of doesn't matter. Like that, it is such a terrible circumstance that the notion that, you know, then Israel's response is to open fire just feels wildly unjust. Went back to your original question, David, whether the U.S. has given over its traditional role, obviously moving the you know, in the old days, the reason the embassy was in Tel Aviv was to keep as a part of a future negotiation that the U.S. would help broker the status of Jerusalem up in the air by choosing uh, to move the embassy to Jerusalem. It tells the Palestinians that basically that's been taken care of. And even though they think they should have a capital in Jerusalem, that that's been settled. But the second thing is that what used to pressure U.S. Uh, governments was that the Arab reaction to doing that would be so violent that they would, you know, the Americans didn't want to court that that outrage from the Arab world. And that seems to have diminished. Right. So if you look That's at the right. political pressure on this current administration, obviously there's a lot of strong pressure from donors in in the Republican Party to do what the president did. And so, and I believe Sheldon Adelson was actually at the ceremony. So you've got that pressure to do what he did. And then the other pressure, which would balance things out, is going away, which is to say that there didn't seem to be much outrage from the Arab world directed at the United States, either for the move or for the Israeli reaction to the Palestinian protests. So it seems like the pressure to get something done is um, uh, is, is moved away considerably. That, that's, that's a really good point, John. And it's because there's a basically now an implicit alliance between a lot of the Sunni Arab and Gulf states and Israel, so that the the Saudis and, and those in their circle, and and to a lesser extent, kind of the Jordanians and the Egyptians, basically are allied against an Iran, a rising Iran. Mm-hmm. There's this weird way. The thing I don't maybe you can explain this, Emily, that Israel's chief enemy has somehow become Iran, even though it doesn't share a border with Iran, and they don't really have any. They're not really. At odds, they don't really well, have any, any I mean, conflict Iran with each other. Well, is backing and funding Hezbollah, so I and you know and has ties to other very anti-Israel groups. So I, I mean, I think that's like, that seems fairly obvious. But I think John's point is a really important one, and it's always with the Middle East. Like while it's really complicated, you have to take into account all these different actors and the way in which these international pressures matter just as much as what's going on domestically. What if then suddenly the Trump administration said, okay, we moved the the, um, the U.S. embassy and now we're going to recognize Palestinian claims to the eastern half of Jerusalem? That is not going to happen. Like, <laughs> There's why, no why, danger that's going to catering happen. Yeah. But I'm, Nielsen, I, why would you ever extend yourself to the Palestinians? And there's also this problem, which which is there's no left 
remaining in the country. There's no left for peace that has any influence in the country. Right. And there are these domestic arguments going on about, you know, laws that discriminate against women. There are these questions of the rising power of the Orthodox that consume a lot of energy within Israel arguing internally. And it's, I think, easier to kind of block out what's happening in the territories. But when you actually, like, look at what's happening in the territories, I mean, you know, in 1967, when Israel took over the West Bank, they could have pulled out, they could have prevented Jewish settlers from settling. They didn't. It wasn't some, like, big deliberate choice in which Israel's leadership at the time really thought it through and understood the implications. It was a little more, I mean, accidental is too strong, but... It just kind of unfolded. And now there are all these settlers. There are, you know, daily battles over Palestinian lands in which the Israeli Supreme Court rulings that give Palestinians the right to plant crops or live free, live on those lands within the confines of this, um, you know, militaristic control are like shifting all the time on the ground in terms of how the army interprets them. David Shulman, who is one of the kind of remaining Israel real doves, was writing about this this week. And so, you know, when you read accounts like that, it's almost as if you could see, uh, like, imagine what it would be like in the United States if Native Americans were currently losing their lands, as opposed to, like, this original sin that happened years ago that, you know, is a scar on the nation, but for better or worse, it sort of is a piece of history. It's not happening um, right now. There are places in the West Bank where it is happening right now. But I don't think, Emily, I don't know. You and I are both American Jews who've spent time in Israel. And, you know, and I think I certainly have Israeli relatives and you, I don't know if you do. But I I certainly don't think it is my place as an American to spend a lot of time trying to shape Israeli domestic politics. That That's Israel's business. Like my job as an American is to try to influence American decision makers to make better decisions about our foreign policy and our foreign policy as it relates to Israel and as it relates to other countries. Even when Israel is doing things that I find terrible and tragic and believe to be long-term mistakes, I don't really think it's my business telling them not to do them. Well, I guess I wonder what the distinction is. I mean, sure, like then concentrate on, you know, American government leadership and an America. We have such an oversized influence in with Israel and in that region that if you changed the Trump administration's policy, that would carry enormous weight. And so you can channel your energy in that direction if that feels better to you. But I feel like these things bleed into each other. That's a not the right word to use. Um, but oh, these it is things, the right it, word. Oh, what? boy. It sure is the right word. Maybe it is. I mean, these things, the, these two issues of like how whether American Jews are supposed to directly comment and, you know, have an opinion about Israeli policy or whether we just take our feelings about Israeli policy and then try to get our um, Jewish organizations or, you know, the whoever is in the White House to respond to them. It's it doesn't feel that different to me. All right. Last question. We've we've kind of moved away from the particular tragedy of the week, which is the death of death of scores of people in what seems to be largely unnecessary slaughter. Didn't seem to be a gross threat to Israeli national security that was that was occurring during these protests. Why do you think Israel is pursuing such an implacable strategy? Why why are they shooting to kill people? And what do you do in the face of thousands of people seeking to kind of break through a fence and break through a border? Well, and do you do you think their claims that basically members of Hamas are infiltrating these um, 
protests and that those are the guys who are being shot, do you think that's a totally made up or do you think they're over, um, you know, because their theory, of course, right? I think it's probably oversold. I doubt mm-hmm. it's totally made up. I've always thought that that the Palestinian, I mean, the, the, the Palestinian stupidity in all of the protests over the, since the first intifada, the the way in which they've let violence infect it, if they had been simply remained and been able to persist with a nonviolent strategy and a strategy of nonviolent protests in this case, where you just simply go and walk peacefully up to this fence, it would be so much more effective than what they pursued. And I do think they probably seeded the crowd with people with weapons or or people decided autonomously on their own, you know what, I'm going to use this opportunity to try to sneak through and, and do some damage. So I, so I think that Hamas clearly uh, was happy to have that happen, uh, have have the crowds be infiltrated. But that still does that justify the no the, no, pr- the response I'm, by Israel? I don't know. Right. Well, that's yeah. No, I was just trying to figure out what the how to calibrate what happened. I mean, we know that Hamas has dug the tunnels, and we know they have shot the rockets and all that. But but that doesn't really tell us about what happened on this specific day that sixty people died. Right. I mean, I think there were other means of crowd dispersal that Israel could have used, right? Mm-hmm. Surely. I mean, water there. Like, I, but I also feel like uh, in some ways focusing on this like misses the larger picture. I mean, I agree with you, David. I think the Palestinians would be much better served with nonviolent protest. I also think that is like such a huge thing to ask of people. Of it course. demands a yep. kind of statesmanlike leadership that the Palestinians have not had. And it demands kind of renouncing their own feelings that like the violence is justified by, well, at this point by the power imbalance, but before by this kind of historical um, feeling of of losing their land and losing their place. And it, I don't know, like it's, there. look, there's so much blame on both sides or all sides in this story, but I just feel like when we pound on the Palestinians for not having a better strategy at this point when, you know, we're talking about an Israel that is dominant. It just feels like it's not a satisfactory answer to me. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Plus members get extra segments on the GABFEST and other Slate podcasts, and you can join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. This week's Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about Tom Wolf. 
possibly the greatest journalist of our time, one of the great writers of our time who died this week. We will celebrate him, or certainly I will celebrate him. You guys can deplore him if you want. I don't know. We'll find out. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member. Political Washington distracted itself for far too much of the past week with the story of Kelly Sadler, someone I'd never heard of, a mid-level White House press aide who cracked a morbid and cruel joke about John McCain, how his opinion about uh, CIA director Gina Haspel's nomination, I think it was about that, didn't matter because he's dying anyway, in a private meeting. And this was leaked out and became publicly known that she had said this. So there are a couple of stories here. First is the continuing persistent refusal of the White House to apologize for anything. And second, the fact that Sadler's remark leaked so quickly, the fact that the White House was way more upset about the leak than the joke, and the meetings about leaking were themselves leaked, and then a bunch of White House sources talked to reporters about why they leaked. There's a lot about leaking. So first of all, before we get to the leaking question, I'm actually going to rise to Sadler's defense. I don't want to belabor it. It was a joke and poor taste. But honestly, it's a kind of thing that people in politics cynically say all the time. It's like that's it's a dark, cynical joke that political people say all the time privately to each other all but the time. But then when you get and, called out in public, why not just say I'm sorry? But And there's so much sanctimony because it involves McCain and McCain is, is, you know, has been this amazing American leader and he appears to be dying. And so there's a there's a kind of holiness surrounding him. And so to make a joke about McCain, who I am sure has made similar jokes in his life about people, certainly said salty things in private himself. So is that well, OK, so there's a question of is the is the joke itself wrong or simply the fact that that there hasn't been a public apology from Sadler wrong? She may have she I think she did reach out to to Megan McCain to apologize. I don't know whether that was whether she handled I mean, it well. from a, just a purely human standpoint. I think you don't you don't I mean, you mean people are should be free to say stupid and cruel and morally gross things, which is to is to, to kind of delight well, in the, delight like the, in the impending death of someone. You, you're not. But your point is, yeah, people I don't think are she like was delighting in the impending death. I don't you think she was delighting in the impending death. I wasn't there. I don't. Well, contextually, I don't know what it is. Implicitly it more, delighting. It was, it, it's not delighting. It's more like it's it's a it's a kind of like throwaway line. Like, ah, yeah, he's dying. What does it matter? And obviously, um, it, this was objectionable enough for a, for a few people in the meeting to be so repulsed that they felt they had to leak it, which is so. Also, once it gets out there, you as a White House are a kind of steward of norms, and this is one of them, which is you respect the dignity of other people, and you maybe respect the dignity of a sitting senator. And by the way, you've got good news on North Korea. So why have this be a multi-day story? Uh, why not just apologize, move on, and have everybody focus on the big success you had this week on North Korea? Right. So there's there's a tactical point, which is you make extremely well, which someone should have said to them, which is that they they should have pushed it along. And there was that that's the reason to apologize. And also because it's the humanly decent thing to do. I guess I'm still I still would say that it's a completely forgivable, excusable remark. And it's and it's moreover, it's just the kind there's a level of hypocrisy. It's the kind of thing that I know because I hang around political journalists all the time. I used to be a political journalist. And except for, you know, a few who are who are quite big hearted, and I would put you in that category, John, 
like everyone says things like this all the time in politics. All the time. But I feel and like so, that's sort of not the point. Like no, to I, me, the point is there are kind of two principles at stake. There's kind of basic norms of decency and civility, which John has done an excellent job of mapping because he thinks a lot about this. And then there's the principle of not apologizing for anything, like even when you're shooting yourself in the foot. And that is a character trait of President Trump. And now we're seeing it permeate his administration. And is that what we want from the presidency? No, of course. Of course we don't. So uh, let's go to the leak. John, you are such a student of this kind of stuff. Does this White House leak, in fact, more than its predecessors? Yes. It's, it's, uh, there's not even a water metaphor big enough to contain the way in which this White House leaks. So it leaks. An ocean? Well, the Glen I think Canyon an ocean, Dam? I think an ocean is, is too small. I think um, uh, <laughs> an ocean is the, but a thimbleful in, mm. the, in the container we need to. And, and mm. what is striking about the leaking here is obviously there's leaks. There's the leaks about leaks. And I love the like long explanation (laughs) that Jonathan Swan of Axios printed Mm. of like why all the leaking. Well, and also we have never let's say this. We have never had a president who has thrilled so much in leaking himself as a private citizen, certainly, and perhaps even even as a president. Um, Now, we should we should note that for a long time before, you know, Woodrow Wilson held that first uh, public press conference. You had presidents who, and then even for a long time after that, you had presidents who leaked in one of the definitions of it, which is they tell you something and you just don't attribute it to them. You don't attribute it to them, and you just attribute it to the administration or to an administration official. So we've had a lot of that with presidents. We've had weird things where Bill Clinton once talked to a bunch of reporters, and then they cited an administration official familiar with the president's thinking. Um, but what what I think is most important um, substantively about leaking and this administration is that leaks are the sign of a corrosive system inside of an administration. And there's the sign of of several different things. One, so much chaos that that members of the administration feel like they can't get their ideas adjudicated in the normal channels. And so they have to go outside to try to create a situation that fixes the the policy debate. Second thing is it's so corrosive that the president only listens to things that are put in front of him that have been printed in the New York Times so that if you say something in a meeting, you'll be ignored. But if it appears in the New York Times in front of the president, that's the only way that they see it. And those those are sort of double related. But then the biggest corrosive part is that this long into administration, if everybody is not rowing in the same direction, it means that there is not the lift of inspiration in the chief executive or in the people around him. That makes it a place where you wouldn't dare leak, not because somebody's going to take your job away or punish you or or because it's impossible to do because they've locked away your phones. But you don't want to leak because you believe so much in the mission of the person or in the duty you have to the American people, which presumably the executive is trying to carry out that duty, that, that it would be an almost unpatriotic thing, that you would stop yourself from leaking. If that isn't the reaction... And yet, and and in fact, we've seen quite the opposite. It suggests that people are not policing themselves. They're compelled to leak because of the the corrosion. Um, And that is not healthy. There was a really good set of stories about how the Clinton administration shut down the leaking that occurred during the first year. And one of the main points was, so so I I think largely the story. Is that where it was? Yeah, Largely, it's that Leon, Leon Panetta uh, came in as chief of staff, and he didn't 
do a massive investigation to root out the the leakers. There wasn't there wasn't a, a kind of public uh, humiliation of the leakers and, and a ritualized executions. It was we're all together on the team. We're going to find the the pride to all work together to believe in what we're doing, and we're going to act professionally because of it and act patriotically because of it. That sort of the positive approach was what worked, and the negative approach of investigating, locking people's phones away, threatening people just perpetuates the the kind of paranoia and, you know, I'm going to get shivved attitude that causes people to leak to begin with. Man, can I mention another kind of leak we had this week? Ronan Farrow had an amazing story this week about um, Michael Cohen's financial dealings, which are connected to the Stormy Daniels payment, but are but are even more connected to these payoffs to him to gain influence into the new administration. And then an investigator talked to Farrow um, because he was worried that the system that had been flagged several times, the banking system that had been flagged several times in noticing big payments to Cohen and his moving money around, which flagged the the system-wide process for uh, transactions that might be suspicious activity. Suspicious. FinSec in the Treasury FinSec, Department. Yeah. They're the, the watchdog for suspicious financial transactions. Right. It, it, it had flagged that kind of unrelated, not knowing the facts of the case, just huge amounts of money moving around. And the official that talked to Farrow was worried that the information was now being withheld from law enforcement because it was disappearing from the database. So that's another leak that happened this week, which is the another basket of leaks, which is not necessarily inside the administration, but inside the kind of in various investigations going on. Not, not any leaking, by the way, going on by Mueller, but... Um, Nevertheless, in the various lawyers and uh, on all sides of the various investigations going on related to the president and those around him. Emily, going back to to John's very uh, clarifying dissection of the leaking at this administration, why it's so prevalent. Is there any realistic hope that as a Trump gets more more of his people in the White House and fewer people he doesn't want, which is something he appears to be doing? Uh, and B, he just becomes more comfortable in the job, that the culture of leaking will stop? I mean, it seems like the factionalization and the fighting it out has been how he's always run his operation. So why would we expect that to change? Um, if anything, you might expect it to intensify as more and more. I mean, I don't – it seems like he's – the people in the White House are his people, so I don't really – know what that means. But John, do you imagine this calming down or do you imagine it continuing? Well, so many people, I mean, we are well into an administration and um, the president has not been shy about firing people. <laughs> um, and I think the way he has fired them or had them fired or exerted pressure on his staff or forced them out um, is by leaking, right? The leaks of reports of, oh, Jeff Sessions is really on the chopping block. Kirsten Nielsen, the, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, she might, you know, they're looking for replacements now. The leak is used, as all administrations use them, but this one in hyperdrive and also in this specifically personnel-related way to kind of either float trial balloons or uh, knock people off or, or prepare the way for their dismissal. You cannot suggest that, well, once he gets his team in there and this is, you know, then things will get better. I think that this is a this is a byproduct of the way the place runs. We've seen so many people change and, and yet the leaks continue. Going to the apology question, Emily, Trump appears to be literally incapable of apology 
uh, he has not apologized to any of the people he said disgusting things about over the last couple of years, not to McCain, not to Kaiser Khan, not to Judge Curiel. The list goes on Any and of on. the other people he has impugned and slandered. Uh, is that a quality of narcissism or is that, uh, is that not, not necessarily a, a narcissist quality? It's just something built into him. I think it's narcissistic. I also think he it's part of his whole milieu, right? That you have these brawls with people, that you revel in the brawls, that you never back down. And why should he change that way of operating when it has served him well from his point of view? Um, you know, he's all about the idea that he knows best and that he is best served by following his gut instincts, especially right now. I didn't. It's really amazing to me that he's gotten as far as he has in life without being able to apologize. I, it, it's made me think maybe there's an entirely different way to live, and I just don't recognize it. Well, it's related to the difference between leading through fear and leading through love, right? Like, it's all it, – it, right, if we want to believe that leading through fear doesn't work. And when, you know, when you were my boss, you didn't lead that way. And you're really good at apologizing and it has served you well. So the idea that there's this alternate path in which you never back down and, like, you get to be – you get to fail up to be the president, that's depressing. Well, it leaves – you know, there there is there is collateral damage that um, that is left when you behave that way. And so usually you're um, – you know, your your conscience kicks in and says, I don't want to leave wreckage. Um, and I think a piece of wreckage here, by the way, is uh, Kelly Sadler. She has become, and her her issue is talked about and, and on and on. She tried to make it right, called Meghan McCain. Who knows, you know, whether whether and how she was, and whether she was any good, but it was, she did the right thing, right? You say something stupid, you apologize. And if the administration had apologized, and perhaps the president in his worldview would see that as a kind of knock against him or something that would hurt him. But if you're a leader, you take the hit. Yeah, your person did something stupid, but you take the hit on their behalf. Everybody who works for you sees you take the hit on their behalf and says, you know, he's a stand-up guy. He's done the big thing. And boy, that's the kind of guy I want to work for. And that kind of Culture then creates a situation in which you don't leak because you say, why would I want to do something small for my own self-aggrandizement when the person I'm working for set this example of doing something big at their own expense? Um, but that's not happening. So is this like exhibit 3,231 in human wreckage and shame are not going to in any way really affect the Trump administration and what matters are election results, like no other – Avenue, all these kind of small checks of civility and norms and decency that we've relied on in previous presidents to get the president to recalibrate. They seem to have almost zero power. Yep. Certainly that seems to be the case. Yeah. Now, you know, and then the question is whether there's any, um, you know, how big the damage is. Just one one more thing on on the morality of apologies. G.K. Chesterton has a great quote about apologies even apologies and fake apologies. He said, a stiff apology is a second insult. The injured party does not want to be compensated because he has been wronged. He wants to be healed because he has been hurt. I thought that was a good a reminder of why we apologize. That can get um, lost here in, in the political debate. All right. Let's leave it there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The district attorneys of Brooklyn and Manhattan. I, well, I'm not even going to. I'm not even. Gonna, I'm not even going to introduce <laughs> this topic. Afraid. I'm afraid that whatever I'm going to say, Emily's going to Emily's going to to tear it apart. So, Emily, why don't you introduce this topic? Okay, so New York is a state in which the possession of marijuana, the smoking of marijuana, remains illegal. And so we have this interesting situation in which, particularly in Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez, who I've been doing some reporting on for my book, inherited a district attorney's office in which twenty in 2014 his predecessor promised to reduce the prosecution of marijuana possession. And so at that point... Forget about Manhattan because the DA in Manhattan, Cy Vance, was not on board for this. At that point, the idea was that as a way of countering stop and frisk, prosecutors in Brooklyn were going to decline to prosecute people who got stopped for some potentially bogus reason by the cops because a lot of bogus stops were and, you know, racially discriminatory and disparate stops were like driving stop and frisk. And that if if the cops found weed in your pocket, you probably wouldn't get prosecuted. So it turned out that that policy only sort of went into effect. And I think last fall, WNYC did a big story showing that in more than 80 percent of the arrests in Brooklyn, the cops were still prosecuting for marijuana. And the reason for that was there were a bunch of exceptions to this policy the Brooklyn DA's office has put in place. And it mostly affected people who had open warrants or were out on probation or parole or had a criminal history. And and there was also an exception for smoking in public. So and when WNYC did this report, it turned out that almost everyone who was still getting arrested for a marijuana possession was black or Hispanic. That is true citywide. That is a huge problem. So fast forward to now. What happened was that the NYPD was claiming that the reason for this racially disparate pattern of enforcement of marijuana is that there are more 911 calls complaining about weed from predominantly minority neighborhoods. And the New York Times went in and did this analysis where on a precinct level, they compared different places in the city and they found that that explanation from the NYPD just doesn't hold up because you see the same rate of complaints about marijuana on the Upper West Side as, you know, a neighborhood in Harlem. And you see many more black people arrested in Harlem, this predominantly black place. So what the city and in particular Gonzalez and Cy Vance are wrestling with and what the NYPD really needs to think about is what is the point of this? So on the one hand, it's a funny question for the cops and prosecutors to be asking, right? Because if the state still says marijuana possession is illegal, how do you go around just essentially deciding not to enforce the law? But the other side of it is like, if they don't act, we're going to continue to have, or New York will continue to have, this racially disparate pattern of enforcement. And so I think what we're really seeing here underlying this is that the police are reluctant to give up marijuana arrests as a way to essentially police people they 
think are bad guys, people who already have records, people who are doing things they don't like. It's a tool for them. Um, and and then the sort of pushback when you look at – when you think about that tactic, well, what exactly – like if the, if the city is coming around a consensus view that, you know, marijuana enforcement for white people is not something we want anymore, why are we still doing it for black people who have these like – vague suspicions attached to them, especially because we know, we really know from the research that the notion that marijuana arrests reduce serious crime is just not true. So that's the sort of underlying situation here. So if if someone's arrested and and it's just on their record for six months and then it gets wiped, but they're arrested for, for marijuana and it's on their record for six months and it's just wiped, so what's the big deal? But it is a big deal, right? Because yes. people lose housing, they lose jobs, they're they're, they have to go to court. They have it's to a waste hassle. Time in court. Like yeah. it means they can get in bigger trouble for something else in that intervening six months. Like it is a tax. It is a tax on poor people. It is a tax on Black and Hispanic people. And it leads to these. It's in the some of the neighborhoods I've been reporting in in Brooklyn. You have this funny situation in which, like, think about it. You're like a black kid. You're 19 or 20 years old. You see that people are not getting mm-hmm. prosecuted anymore. I mean, all over the city, you smell marijuana in a way that I didn't used to notice it just a few years ago, right? It's true, by the way, where I live in New Haven, too. So you smell it. You see it. People around you are smoking, like in the hallway of an apartment building or outside. And then the cops come and they, you know, they may, yes, they're responding to a complaint or they just see people um and they come over and they run the names and then they only pick up some of the people, the people with these open warrants, the people they see as like the, quote, bad guys for reasons that, you know, are a black box. Like, what does that feel like to you if you're that that teenager? That feels rotten and unfair. And New York, which has, you know, supposedly ended stop and frisk, like this is a kind of vestige of stop and frisk that is still causing a lot of um, unhappiness and unfairness. I have a question about whether how this connects to the broken windows theory of policing. So we heard so much in the 90s about the idea that if you stop nuisance crimes, fair dodging, uh, minor disruptive chaotic crimes that you put a block against bigger crimes later. A, is this pot enforcement an example at all of this? And B, did it turn out that the broken windows theory was nonsense? The broken windows theory at this point is much disputed and I would say largely debunked. I mean, it's a people still make those claims, but the so to let's talk about New York more because it had broken windows and it also has become as there's a book that this UC Berkeley criminologist named Franklin Zimming wrote called The City That Became Safe. So New York has had tremendous success in reducing crime. And then the question becomes, why do we credit broken windows policing for some of that drop? And when the criminologists go in and they like try to look at the this question, it is a complicated question. There is no simple answer for why crime dropped in New York or across the country. But giving a lot of credit to broken windows policing looks like a big mistake because broken windows policing was not shown to reduce serious crime. And the other amazing thing about New York, the headline, at least in my view, is that New York reduced crime at a great rate while also reducing mass incarceration at a great rate. So Mm -hmm. the notion that like you pick up all these small fry offenders, you get them off the street for a short amount of time, that's having some bigger deterrent effect. That seems to not be true. And now we're having a kind of another test of that. You know, can the city stop enforcing its marijuana laws without having crime rise? The cops are worried about it. But it looks like the answer to that is probably yes. I mean, 
One thing that has happened in Brooklyn since 2014 is that the number of arrests for marijuana possession has gone way down. So we're still having some of those cases prosecuted when people do get arrested. But the idea that we're just like picking people up because they have weed in their pockets and that means that, you know, that's going to prevent crime more broadly, like that does not look to be true at all because crime has continued to drop in Brooklyn and across the city. Is there evidence from cities like D.C. or Denver which have decrimmed marijuana that crime changed in any way? No. Um, crime has not risen in those places, as far as I know. I should note also, though, I was um, surprised when we were reading up for this topic. So Colorado, which has mostly stopped prosecuting people for marijuana, also has a problem of racially disparate enforcement. When they do arrest people, they're three times as likely to be African-American. And so you know, look, like, (laughs) this is racially disparate law enforcement is just like a a constant nagging problem in our criminal justice system. Um, And the question is, like, how much do we care about it? How much does that fundamental unfairness drive how we shape, how we think about our, our policies? And And I would say that it's important to ask those questions against the backdrop of, you know, recognizing just how massive mass incarceration remains in the United States. I mean, it's quintupled our rate of incarceration since the 70s. We're still way, way ahead of other developed countries, for example, in Europe. And it's just we're causing tremendous (laughs) destruction, especially to poor minority communities. And it's really not clear what we're getting from it. The other complexities here are that a, there's some there's some suggestion that the aggressive enforcement of minor legal statutes actually incites behavior that's worse. The other thing is that at the time New York um, broken windows was being enforced or that theory was being followed by Bratton, there, there was a 40 percent reduction in, in um, unemployment in the state. And so you had massive sociological changes going on that would also contribute to a decrease in in uh, in crime and then also the the other thing is that there was there was a drop in crime in other states that weren't following broken windows theory at about the same time so it's just more evidence of this messiness that um in the in the data that Emily described yes good point you know i, I don't know this data and i emily you obviously are deeply expert on it. It is just the, the lived experience of these cities. It, it, broken windows always felt intuitively yeah. right to me, though. Why would you credit those things as opposed to what John just explained about unemployment declining, well, these larger social forces? Uh, There's a whole social science sure, that's about sure. you well, know social cohesion in neighborhoods and how nonprofit organizations can contribute to that. All these things that have nothing to do with law enforcement that can really affect how safe a city feels, like whether people go to the park, right, whether the park is like a safe place. Are people publicly drinking and that does in not the park? A- I mean, those are all things. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, but now I, you're I think, about policing I do in think, general, no, no, I think you're right. I know you're right. I know you're, I know you're right on the data. It's just, <laughs> well, it's, it is very hard to reconcile the idea that, that, that this had nothing to do with it, with the fact that to me, the, the huge difference in living in American city 20 years later is the feeling that chaos has been diminished and therefore it is safe, for, is safe in all places at all times in all ways. Okay, what if what about just thinking about this? Like if you live in a mostly white affluent neighborhood, do you want the cops picking your kids up if they are smoking in the park? 
And if you don't, why do you want the right. cops picking up someone else's right. black yeah. teenager yeah. for smoking no, in no. their park? No, totally, that's totally right. And, and it's a completely fair point. Yeah. Also, or couldn't... for people sitting on their porch, my neighbors sit on their porch and have a drink. Like, right. is there anything like, wrong with that? Exactly. I mean, one thing New York has already wrestled with is its open container laws. And why not deal with that through a summons, like a ticket, right? There are all these infractions constantly. It's true, obviously, with so many driving problems, right? Like you get a parking ticket, you get a speeding ticket, you don't get a criminal record. You get a civil summons. Like there are different ways of dealing with um, the kind of behavior they're describing that don't entail giving people criminal records that have all yep. these negative consequences for them. It's possible, too, that there is some contributory benefit of broken windows. It's just not as big as people claim for yes. it. I mean, obviously, there's a spectrum from it incites more violence to it's the solution to all crime. Right. And one other thing to think about is like why the police and law enforcement are an answer as opposed to like calling your landlord or doing something that has that's softer. That's a a way of problem solving and dealing with, you know, I don't even want to use the word deviant, but dealing with behavior you don't like. Like if if you're in an apartment house and, and there's like the smell of pot everywhere and you don't want it to be there, like who do you call and why do you live in a place where like the cops seem like your only resort? Right. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting on your porch, as I'm sure the Bazelons and Dickersons and Rosenplatzes do occasionally with a cocktail, what are you going to be chattering about, John Dickerson? Well, my first, uh, well, what I'll be chattering about, it comes from Daniel Pink's newsletter. Daniel Pink is the a great writer who um, has a wonderful newsletter that includes um, things, uh, links and suggestions to various other things. And this came from that. And it is, it is a story about something that I have a reaction to like this um, Yanni or Laurel audio thing where one person hears one thing and one person hears another. To me, this would be a life of doom for the person engaged in it is a life of happiness. And what this person is engaged in is living on Royal Caribbean cruises. Mario Salcedo. Oh my God. Two decades ago, two decades ago, retired from his job and went on a cruise from which he has never returned. For almost 20 years, he has been a permanent resident on the Royal Caribbean cruises. He has spent more than 7,000 consecutive nights on cruise ships. I learned all of this. Well, from the link on Dan's uh, newsletter, but it was in a New York Times op doc, 10 minute little film about Super Mario's life on these cruise ships. I suggest you go watch it and also contemplate what life would be like on a Royal Caribbean cruise for 7,000 straight days. I don't know. He was a, um, for 21 years, I think he was a, um, involved in the corporate world. I think he did, um, he traveled a lot to Latin America in, in, in for a financial services company or something. Um, Wait, is that like millions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars? No, millions. It'd be millions. Okay, my rough, millions? my rough number in my head is two point eight million dollars. 
So let's. I'm interested to see what it. Oh, I wonder. Actually, is yeah, that's fascinating. He, one thing that's very poignant in the at the end of the um, at the end of the doc is he talks about you know he doesn't want to go die in some land hospital. So he thinks when he uh, and I, I I thought you might attach to this, David, but that when he feels as though his the end is near, he would just go scuba diving. You know, just keep going down, just kind of just go down, and then that would be the end of it. Once once his of oxygen ran out or the or the pressure became too much or that that, that would he doesn't want to go to, go on land oh my so, god anyway like 950 cruises oh my god yeah are you like oh envying or feeling horrified horrified I'm feeling horrified. Yeah. horrified well that's my point is, is is that's why i compared it to that um the, the audio meme because i mean this is obviously great happiness for mario salcedo he has achieved the singular thing in life that he wants to do and for me this would be um like that hell on earth yeah like that play no exit i mean it would be it would be really not something i would want to do in any possible way oh my god it looks like uh no it looks like less than two million dollars oh huh oh my god i'm getting anxious and claustrophobic (laughs) just thinking about it also he only gets interior interior cabins which keeps his cost down so there's no way oh my god uh, I'm not sure you can keep saying, oh, my God. <laughs> I think you may have maxed out. This is really, it's like, you know, some people get upset by, there's so many worse things to get upset by. And not, here I am upset by some guy who's living his dream by being on a cruise. And yet I am I feel worse than I felt in, in days. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Emily, what's your chatter? <laughs> it's definitely not as fun as that. So in the, the long list of things that we should be paying attention to but are getting lost in the din... Uh, There was this really promising bipartisan effort to have federal sentencing reform, to have Congress pass a law that would address some of the over-enforcement problems we were just talking about on a federal level, fewer or lower mandatory minimum sentences for people who were nonviolent drug offenders. There were other reforms. It was going to, like, put a dent in the federal prison population. And Chuck Grassley, the Republican who's the head of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, was very much behind this. There was a list of bipartisan supporters. They had been hammering it out for a couple of years. Attorney General Jeff Sessions opposes, opposed this legislation kind of in the face of groups, you know, including like the Koch brothers who have styled themselves as criminal justice reformers. And he has succeeded in heading it off. And so what Congress is now considering instead is this extremely watered down bill called the First Step Act that really only addresses like a little bit of reentry and a little bit of prison conditions. Like they're no longer going to shackle pregnant women in federal prisons if this law passes. And they're going to give women um, tampons and tampons and stuff. Like, okay, that's good. But compared to really getting thousands of people out of prison, it is small change. And that some Democrats um, seem to be basically like going for this um, to the dismay of groups like the ACLU and the Brennan Center for Justice. And so um, just watch this. Like to my surprise, one of the New York City representatives, Hakeem Jeffries, has gotten behind this bill. So of some other Democrats, or at least they've voted it out of committee. I don't think Cory Booker has spoken out publicly on it yet. He was has been one of the main proponents for um bigger criminal justice reform. But like right now, it's like Chuck Grassley is carrying the the banner here. And and the idea that, you know, the first step, the first step suggests there will be future steps, but it seems entirely likely that will not happen. And all of this energy will get dissipated and kind of dribbled away into quite a small bill. 
All right. My chatter is about a study that's been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week, and it was written up in the New York Times, which is where I saw it. It's about a research project led by Andrew Wilson, who's an archaeologist at Oxford, and then a ice expert at the Desert Research Institute in Reno, Nevada, named Joseph McConnell. And what they did is they got an ice core from Greenland. So there's often, they would, as a way of sort of tracking climate and tracking snowfall and precipitation, there are these huge ice cores in Greenland, and you can um, go back thousands and thousands of years to, to sort of get levels of precipitation and other things. And they found one, they found an ice core which contained ice from the entirety of the Roman Empire, the years of the Roman Empire, and they um, melted it and analyzed the water that came out, and they could track the water to a particular year, and they looked at the lead levels in the water. And why would you look at the lead levels? Because lead levels in water from the Roman Empire correlates incredibly closely to the economic activity of the Roman Empire. Because Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, so lead is used for making pipes and also for making ships. And lead is also used when you're when you're making silver coin. The way they mined, the I guess lead uh, lead and silver were commingled, and so you had to burn the lead off to get at the silver, which you were going to use for your coin. You know, during the Great Pax Romana period, lead levels spike uh, in the in this Greenland ice, and then because this is all, then the lead, lead goes into the atmosphere. It falls as snow, it falls as part of snow, thousands of miles away in Greenland. And then after periods of plague or during periods of chaos in the empire, the lead levels drop precipitously. So it's just a cool little bit of science, and I really enjoyed it. Neat. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest or email us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Come to our Philly live show on July 18th. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. Do you ever wish you could listen to a new episode of the GabFest every day? Until that day comes, add a new daily show from Vox to your routine. It's called Today Explained. Every afternoon, the team takes a deep dive into one essential news story, and they have fun with it. There's a lot of production and really smart voices from Vox and beyond. Subscribe to Today Explained on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.